Hey, listen up. No reporters view the body. Photo men, finish taking your pictures now. Coroner's men, put a sheet on the body as soon as they're done. We set up a perimeter six feet back. Any reporter crosses it, arrest them. Now, gentlemen, before this gets out of hand, let's put the kibosh on something. With publicity, you get confessions. With confessions, you get crazies, liars, and false leads. So, we keep some things quiet. The, uh, ear-to-ear -ear facial lacerations, uh, disembowelment. You keep this information to yourselves, not your wives, not your girlfriends, no other officers, and I mean no... Like, what the hell are you doing here? Who the hell's Blanchard? He's right here. Welcome to part two of our Black Dahlia episode. But before we go into real talk, it's time for PP. That's our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what they can expect on their exclusive patron feed, and we also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. So, last uh, patron pitch of January, we are recording fairly in advance, Alex, so a lot of this stuff, usually, you know, by the time we get to the last episode of the month, we're already taking care of some of it, but no, this is all stuff that's in our future, but by the time that you guys listen to this, it'll be obviously very much in our past. Uh, so... You start with the, the ground floor, the Travoltis, and the dollar tier. What do you get if you're on the dollar tier? Well, you get access to all the cutting room floor stuff, all the things that didn't make it into the episode for time or because they were not relevant to the movie uh, enough, but still fun to listen to. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the Ricochet episode, for example, which is what we're currently editing. And uh, that's going to be there, available for patrons, only for patrons. You also get access to our bonus episodes this month. We are tackling a Harmony Korean movie, courtesy of patron Ben Murray. Filmbusters Ben wants us to watch The Beach Bum, a movie that I'm more likely to watch. I mean, I never would have watched it anyway, but if I was going to watch it, I would have watched it for Matthew McConaughey, not for Harmony Korean. Uh, would that be the same for you, Alex? No, I, it was one of those that uh, because of, um, you know, I love Spring Breakers and also have a morbid fascination with harmony kareen it was one of those i just never got around to seeing because uh isla fisher's in it zach efron and i remember snoop dogg that was the big thing i saw something at the arbor that had a trailer for the beach bum on it i was like snoop dogg is getting like an acting credit i'm there <laughs> and then for whatever reason it came and went and i was it premiered at south by um i if i recall correctly it was as far as like availability it was bling and you miss it so i'm glad that uh it's come back around uh 90 minutes I think we'll be all right. Well, it'll at least, at the very least, lend itself to some discussion. How long was Trash Humpers? Too long. <laughs> all right. Well, if you want to see how, how we fare with our Beach Bum review, that's going to be on the Patreon channel available to everybody. Uh, now, if you want more content, then you go up a tier. You go to the Winani. It's a $3 tier. And then you get access to our pre-recording notes. You get access to our video reviews this month. Patron John Amenta has assigned a Richard Linklater movie to Alex. Everyone wants some with an exclamation mark at the end. And I'm getting a Peter Jackson movie, uh, The Frighteners. It's a Michael J. Fox horror comedy, I think. Uh, I've seen at least part of it a long, long time ago. Pretty much a first-time watch. Also a first-time watch for Alex. I'm going to see us uh, record a segment before we watch the movie. Then a segment halfway through the movie and a segment at the very end. That's that's how the QVRs work. So you get access to that and then you get access to Contrarians After Hours. 
That's the spin-off show where we tell you about other things that we're watching, that we're listening to, that we're playing, that we're thinking about. So, Alex, what are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours this time? Well, Julio, it was recently just Christmas. One of the things I was gifted this holiday season was the Todd Browning Sideshow Shockers, which is a three-movie set that was recently released, including uh, The Unknown, The Mystic, and, of course, Freaks, um, all remastered on Criterion Blu-ray. I have not watched any of them as of right now, but by the time we record our After Hours, uh, I think I'm this weekend before the wild card round of the NFL playoff starts, I'm going (laughs) to... Like any normal person, watch uh, (laughs) some Todd Browning movies from nearly a century ago and then watch football. That's me, Todd Browning, Sideshow Shockers, the uh, trilogy on uh, Criterion, which I'm very excited about. That'll be what I'm bringing to the table. Julio, what about yourself? This time around, I will be talking about the show Peacemaker, Alex. It's kind of a follow up to our Suicide Squad episode. I was finally inspired after talking about the movie with you and rewatching it. And I wanted to see, okay, so what, what happened with, with the John Cena character? Because, uh, you know, it got pretty good reviews. People, people really liked it. I just you know, I didn't make the time to watch it. So I finally made the time. It's only eight episodes on HBO. And uh, it's really good. It's so much better than the movie. And the movie was fine. I mean, we both liked the movie. But this is... I will tell you about it. And of course, everybody by now that's listening to this, they're just nodding. They're like, of course it's good. Didn't you hear us like two years ago when we're telling you about it? I'm like, well, I'm late to the party, but uh, better late than never. It's still there. So, And and I, I guess they're finally working on the second season right now. So, And then uh, a movie that I haven't watched yet, but I plan to half watch by the time that we record the After Hours. It's called Theater Camp. And I just, I've been hearing about it a lot in uh, other podcasts, like the guys from Film Spotting were pretty big fans. I don't know much about it other than it's kind of like this indie darling that they're promoting, that they're championing. It's on Hulu. It's only 90 minutes. It stars Ben Platt, Evan Hansen himself. So uh, it seems to be a comedy that has to do with a musical theater. So it could be right up my alley or it could be really cringe. Find out which on our after hours after I've seen it and you'll you'll hear me tell Alex about it. So Theater Camp, Peacemaker, and Todd Brownie's collections of misfits. That's your after hours. And then if you want to be part of those patrons that tell us what to do, those people making picks for the main feed and for the patron feed and for the QVRs, that's when you go to the $5 and $10 tiers, the Embrys and the Gats. So go to patreon.com slash prime, look at what we're offering and see how you would like to join the contrarian supplements. $1, $3, $5, and $10 are respective tiers as Julio's outlined. It's all there. $1 gets you on the ground floor. You have access to things like our Lindsay Lohan retrospective, our Rock Cena mega series, uh, dating all the way back to our first bonus episode years ago with Blue's Warmest Color. We currently have our uh, potential projects out there, the tiers we're looking across. Uh, at 30 patrons, we're going to be doing from silk sheets to the silver screen. Uh, quick rundown. We got Rabid, 52 Pickup, The Running Man, Romance, The Girlfriend Experience, Inherent Vice, and The Other Side of the Wind will be in line with that project. And then further down the line, when we cross 40 patrons, Will and I will be recording commentary tracks on the Friday the 13th franchise. Each movie, you heard that right. 
And then our lofty goal of 50 patrons, because it would be a pretty big undertaking. We'd cover the entire Saturday Night Live film catalog. Um, that is at any level. So as Julio said in the past, and as I tend to agree with, if you have been on the fence before, now's the time to uh, take the risk and drop a dollar down because we've got plenty of good stuff in the works. But that overshadows our current patrons. and We don't want to do that because we love you all dearly. And thank you for your support as you all have been there since day one. Uh, if you have any questions about our patron, be sure to reach out to us any way you choose to. Uh, but we'll keep doing what we're doing for y'all. And of course, we'll keep supplying the goods here on the main timeline here on our main feed. And I guess it's in that vein, Julio, that we return back to to bring a dramatic conclusion to the career of Brian De Palma, at least from a stance <laughs> of uh, major studios <laughs> giving him money to make movies in the United States. We get back into the ring, Alex. Alex, before we do quotes, before we do anything, I just want to air what might be the one true grievance I have with this movie. And it's something that Uh-oh. I I don't think that you share because I know I brought it up before and and I couldn't see like really any quotes or, that reference it and that is that Hillary Swank doesn't look anything like Mia Kirshner and I can't stop that from bothering me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very Julio thing, but also I I get that completely because yeah, it's like are we just saying that all brunettes look alike now? <laughs> Because, I mean, let's be fair, all white people do look the same, but it's... Uh, yeah, but there's gradations of whiteness. <laughs> and in this case, the movie keeps going back to it over and over. They keep talking about how, oh, yeah, well, I wanted to see what it would be like to have sex with somebody that looked like me. It's like, you just had sex with a random woman. She doesn't look anything. I don't understand why you wouldn't have both <laughs> the, the same actress play both roles. You know? It's not like... Um if they were twins, maybe, you know, like if they were identical twins and one had been murdered and then he ended up shacking up with the other one. But it's just kind of like this girl who looks, you know, if you had seen her uh, Elizabeth one time and then we're trying to look just for another brunette, like, yeah, I guess that kind of looks like her. But it's no not. Even, man. It, <laughs> th- dude, the outrage that Scarlett Johansson has at like how similar they look. It's like, well, all right. Yeah, you're sounding really blonde there, ScarJo. All brunettes look the same. But let's let's move from that because <laughs> there's no there's no answer. You know, there's no. It's a dead end of a complaint. It's just me saying that I really don't like that that specific choice by by the director, by the casting department, whatever you know. And well, there's other things going on in the Black Dahlia, but if if I ever need to default to like, well, you know what, Alex, I was just too distracted by how they look nothing alike. Then that's, that's it. That's my get out of jail free card. Fair enough. Julio, is this movie as bad as people say it is? Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) Based on, on the quotes that, that, you know, we pulled and based on the, the stigma that comes with that tomato meter score. I would say no. We, we bring it up time and again with this type of movies where, where we disagree with with the the general impression where we go like, man, 
that that green splotch it's really going to turn people away from watching this movie and i don't think that that's fair i think that they should give it a shot so before we get into our potential praise of it and uh, amongst other things what critical quotes were you able to pull that were complimentary of uh Mr. De Palma's last foray into mainstream filmmaking. And I know we keep teasing that. I'm going to get to in just a second why that was. <laughs> well, uh, these people, they may be a little too into the Black Dahlia, but we'll see. We'll start with Michael A. Smith from Nolan's Pop Culture Review, who says, Filled with atmosphere and attitude to spare, the Black Dahlia is film noir at its finest. So cal- cal- uh, calm down, finest, Michael. I, I take a bit of, yeah, I, let's, let's pump the brakes. <laughs> The next paragraph starts like, by the way, the Black Dahlia is the only film noir I've seen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have seen five movies. <laughs> and Double Indemnity is not one of them. <laughs> uh, next, Mark Palermo from The Coast, Halifax, Nova Scotia, says it meticulously resembles a 60-year-old Hollywood artifact, but with a contemporary cynicism. Is this movie cynical, Alex? Not in a way that older movies aren't. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, contemporary cynicism. I, I don't know. There's even kind of like a happy ending. <laughs> He's haunted, but he, he gets the girl. And I mean, yes, the, the bad guys don't get fully punished, but one of them blows her brains out. <laughs> that's life, brother. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that there's the difference in cynicism is... That that noticeable, I guess, between now and 60 years ago. Next, Michael Joshua Rowan from Stop Smiling says, The Black Dahlia doesn't solve the eternal De Palma dilemma, but it sure does fascinate. I, we, we do have the De Palma dilemma, and I do like the uh, alliteration on that. <laughs> um, but before we get to that, do we have any other complimentary reviews of The Black Dahlia? Uh, there's one more. Jonathan R. Perry from Tyler Morning Telegraph, Texas, says, After two hours of meandering, convoluted indulgences, and loose ends, the Black Dahlia reveals a kinder, gentler Brian De Palma. He should be a good guy to have around. <laughs> they could have some interesting conversations with him, that's for sure. Yeah. I don't know. That the, do you think you watch Black Dahlia and you come away from it? That's your takeaway? Like, hey, whoever made this movie, it's probably a good guy to have around. He's kind and gentle or is this guy just filtering through the fact that he knows the problems filmography and he's thinking well in the context of all the movies he's made this one is kinder and gentler which i still have trouble reconciling that statement with <laughs> with the real world uh, this is a pretty brutal movie and i mean i just said that there's a sort of happy ending that, that we get to but even so i don't know that this I know that this movie is what I would say. Oh, if this is the movie people look at and say, oh, man, he's gone soft. Jesus Christ, right. dude. <laughs> yeah, whether that's praise or, or a condemnation, it seems like it's that's not That's in accurate. the eye of the, the beholder there. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the De Palma dilemma, before we get into the Black Dahlia specifically, uh, Brian De Palma I mean, since day one has been a divisive filmmaker. His movies are one stylized to the point that it turns some people off, but also there's 
typically a good amount of gratuitous violence and um, sexual content to what he makes. On top of that, personally, he does things I've lambasted others for. Specifically, I always give Judd Apatow a hard time for casting his wife and everything he makes. And, you know, Nancy Allen was the female lead in uh, Blowout and Dressed to Kill and, you know, just throughout that time period where uh, he was married to her. So that's obviously on my end. That's a that's a that's hypocritical on my end. <laughs> um, elsewhere, you know, people have accused his movies of being misogynistic. And he I understand through third hand knowledge, not even that, you know, sixth hand knowledge, hand me down information can be a bit prickly to work with as a filmmaker. But I think for the purposes specific to Black Dahlia, what we're talking about here is that his movies were not always these financial successes. Now, Mission Impossible made $500 million, but, you know, Scarface is one of my favorites to talk about because people always act like it was, you know, the 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 greatest thing that had ever happened. And, and you and I have both numerous times given our thoughts on Scarface. It's okay. It's... <laughs> That's the extent Pacino's of it. accent is worse than Hillary Swank's accent in this one. But I think that movie, like, I think it cost like 30 or 40 million and made maybe like 60 or something. And so, you know, that's with the legacy that movie has in some circles, you would think it was like a Star Wars type hit when it came out. Blowout. And we talk about this in our episode. Blowout fucking rules. That's probably the best De Palma movie that I've seen 18 million dollar budget made 14 million back. And, you know, this is decades before this. Mm -hmm. Carrie was his big hit initially, unless I'm skipping over something else, because that movie had like a shoestring budget and ended up making like maybe like 30 or 40 million dollars. And Carrie's fantastic for those of y'all who may be unaware. If you've never seen it, not as good as a remake, but yeah. That's a very, very <laughs> stupid thing to say, Julio. I got an alibi just in case you think I did it. Tied it in a crab's ass, and that is airtight. All right, so let's go down the list here once we move into the 90s, the late 80s, early 90s. The Untouchables, uh, Untouchables starring Kevin Costner, not Omar Sy. Uh, <laughs> that had a $25 million budget, made over $100 million. Casualties of War, $23 million budget, $19 million return. Bonfire of the Vanities, very Oof. famous box office bomb. $50 million made less than 16 back. Carlito's Way, which what a hoot that movie is. Even still, $30 million box office return of a little over 60, which, as I say every time, give me that money. That's cool. I'll take it. But th- these aren't the returns you look for in something like this. Then... Mission Impossible, as I mentioned, made, I think, $500 million. We move into the uh, 21st century in 2000. He made Mission to Mars, which a $100 million budget barely made that back. Femme Fatale, uh, starring Antonio Banderas and Rebecca Romaine Stamos. Reference here. Every five episodes. (laughs) $35 million budget, $17 million return, and then... At long last, we move into the Black Dahlia, $50 million budget, less than that on the return of a little bit over $49 million. So my take on 
the Brian De Palma thing is he is clearly a name made some very, you know, day one film class type movies, but his name seemed for the most part to be bigger than what numbers would show. And as I always say, you know, he's not smearing miracle whip on a piece of bread to get by these days, but <laughs> you add in the fact that like I use the word prickly to try to be as like uh, political or, you know, uh, fence sitting as I could with him as like a filmmaker and some of the reputation that comes along with him. And my personal opinion is it just got to a point where clearly this was the point. It didn't get to a point. We're talking about the point. It got to this and studios were just like, Hey dog, not doing it anymore, man. Sorry. And they use those exact words. <laughs> I'm trying to think of who called up De Palma and be like, yo, Bri, <laughs> we're out the game, dog. We're not doing it anymore. Uh, and just for your knowledge, Julio, and anyone listening out there that doesn't know, it, Brian De Palma directed the uh, Dancing in the Dark music video for uh, Bruce Springsteen. That's the one that famously uh, was like that has Courtney Cox in it. That right. was her first like big um, on-screen appearance. So the De Palma dilemma is being one of the most celebrated filmmakers of your time, but the Hollywood system thinking that you don't have anything to show for that short of, you know, Mission Impossible. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's like we have this name, but odds are that we're not going to get our money back <laughs> every time that we we finance one of his movies. Yeah. I mean, that's I think that's definitely part of it. I think the other part of it is just that on top of that, you don't have, uh, you know, he's mainstream, but he's not mainstream. <laughs> so he's not very true n- not mainstream in the way that uh, you know to to put his with his contemporaries right uh coppola scorsese when they make a movie it feels like you're more likely to appreciate it in the mainstream than at the palma movie because the palma movie is not just the style but also the content and the the heavy sexual content <laughs> in and america you think about like scarface uh, it's one of those movies that's just so known for being Scarface. This sounds like such like an indie music, like a, a nerd take, but you know, I, I mean this genuinely, if you walked up, if you, every person you saw on the street wearing a Scarface t-shirt, if you walked up and asked him who the director was, I bet 50% of the people wouldn't know who directed it. Yeah. He's a name, but he's not a name. That was a perfect way of putting it. And I was just saying, right, that there's like the, the high sexual content in his movies, but really not that like his the latter part of his career, not really, right? Like Snake Eyes is pre Hollywood, and uh, even something like The Black Dahlia or uh, this is this is very Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Like it, it's and maybe that's what they were talking about when they were saying that he went soft or that he was nice. It's just that for all the the graphic violence or whatever, this is not on the level of the shit you see in you know Blowout Carry, Dress to Kill. All right, so he got two movies, looks like, no, three movies, three movies since Black Valley, 2007, 2012, and 2019. And, I mean, IMDb lists three more, uh, one in production, two in development, who knows, right? And So it's not like he's out of the game. It's just that he's not... Uh, and even if he were, it, the, the, going back to what we're talking about, it's not like he doesn't have a legacy or that... Uh, He's asking his brother for a loan. 
I mean, we don't know. We don't know how he financed uh, passion. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, but but still, I mean, it's he has and it happens. You know, it's not just exclusive to directors. It happens to actors, to anybody in the industry. I mean, it's it can be pretty fickle. Sometimes it's something where you can absolutely track the decline. You can see the turning point as we were talking. Like I think in his case, right? That's it makes sense. You you just see how there's not that much return to investment. Uh, so it was inevitable. At some point, people were going to stop financing his movies. Uh, it would be pretty cool if we got a new release from him, like a new big release with an all-star cast again, and it was just like a big deal. And But then, of course, I don't know about you, but I would go into thinking, all right, there's a 50-50 chance <laughs> that I'll enjoy this or that I may think it's a mess which leads into the Black Dahlia. <laughs> uh, we both already, I guess, agreed that this is a movie that's better than its tomato meter score and its reputation. But does that mean it's a good movie, Alex? Toast. To Proposition B. To the Blackheart Blanchard rematch. Bigger than Lewis Schmeling. To my super cops. To us. <laughs> Well, Julio, before we talk about if this was a good movie, attention has to be drawn to what the original movie was, and that was a three-hour cut of this. De Palma's initial cut ran roughly three hours and was a faithful adaptation of the book with more time dedicated to Bucky's psychological breakdown during the investigation and his obsession with avenging the Dahlia. James Elroy was shown a print of this version and wrote an essay praising it entitled The Hillikers. It was published in reissued prints of the novel, which were released before the film premiered. <laughs> in the interim, Elroy's having seen the director's cut in the publication of his essay, the film was significantly edited, shortened at the insistence of the producers. They were all Alex Mattis's. Like, <laughs> 90 minutes. After seeing the theatrical cut, Elroy refused to comment on it, except to tell the Seattle Post intelligencer, Look, you're not going to get me to say anything negative about the movie, so you might as well give up. If that comes out ever, I'm watching it. You know, this movie's almost 20 years old, and there was a Blu-ray release a few years back that was pretty bare bones. So I don't think it's in the works anywhere. But, you know, who fucking knows? We just got a remastered version of Freaks, so who's to say what's going to happen? Well, I mean, I would like it to happen while the Palma's still alive. So and he just needs to do one more hit. That's insane, though. A movie with this cast has an hour of it that's just out there somewhere. Oh, dude, I believe it because the story stops making sense after the first act. <laughs> so Yes. As I texted Julio earlier today. It's quite remarkable how this movie repeatedly forgets it's supposed to be about the Black Dahlia and then rushes back to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is, a, I know the Palma is a capable filmmaker, so I don't know. I, I really don't know what the explanation is for this, but I cannot make heads nor tails of what's going on in the sequence where Aaron Ecker gets killed. I watched it three times. I don't know what the fuck is happening there. Did you? Dude, it, it goes off the rails and that's to this point of 
uh, yeah, I can believe there's a whole other hour of this movie somewhere that was on the cutting room floor. What I, what I was just kind of stress was, I don't know, who knows, with Oppenheimer, if Josh Hartnett's back to take the throne, then maybe we'll finally get the director's <laughs> cut. But no, that scene, and it's like you forget about, uh, is it Bobby Billy DeWitt, whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Like you completely forget about him, and it's like, oh, yeah, all right, Richard Brake's here now, and then. All this shit happens. It's clearly a woman that comes out that <laughs> cuts Aaron Eckhart's throat. And then there's just that intense, gruesome close up of his head exploding like a watermelon. Um, that and then, dude, it this movie like has a lot of things going for it. But then when Bucky finally decides to investigate the Elizabeth's murder, it just happens so fast he just knows where to go immediately he finds all the incriminating evidence and then goes and then like this family explains a movie's worth of plot in (laughs) three minutes and then one of them shoots themselves in the head and it's like what the fuck i mean it makes sense it's at least what what they explain makes sense but it's one of those things where we're like man couldn't you have dramatize this a little better (laughs) so that it's not like an avalanche of facts yeah or couldn't you have made that the movie and us not worry about bobby dewitt and like all the boxing shit and like it just it tries too much and even this movie's two hours instead of three but even then it's like whoa slow the fuck down and the the problem with me watching this and saying that is like i'm enjoying it and you know my you know 90 minute rule most movies should be 90 minutes but even here i'm like all right this is there's these few moments where it feels like this movie's starting to breathe uh one thing we do not get to into contrarian's corner because i couldn't figure out how to work it in we get a wild rose mcgowan appearing yes someone that (laughs) that uh bucky interrogates about like her knowledge of the situation that's one of those scenes where it's like cool we're going to start to learn more about the characters involved and more about Elizabeth's backstory. And there's dude that there could have been an hour of that, that I would have been fine with like these different interrogations where we're learning more and more bit by bit. And I would have much rather had Bucky piece the story together that way than just watching the same porno five times and be like, oh, I got it now. <laughs> yeah. He keeps the investigation when Aaron Eckert is investigating it's just him looking at pictures, like a photographs on a table. And when uh, Josh Hartnett is investigating, it's just him watching that that same was it black and white audition tapes and the porno. It's it's yeah. not uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, expanse there. Um, at the same time, Alex, I really enjoyed. I mean, if I have to pick my favorite element in the movie, it has nothing to do with the Black Dahlia. I just like the love triangle. Uh, not even like love triangle. I love the. I like the relationship that they set up in in those first thirty minutes, whatever the first act, you know, however long it lasts. So, I know I mentioned L.A. Noir earlier, and that movie kind of revolves around the Black Dahlia, but does so in a way that, like, you know, that game came out after this movie, so I can't act like they ran parallel to each other. But it's, uh, I wouldn't be shocked if the makers of that game study this movie a bit and obviously read the the book and had a and figured out their own way to work around it because you're exactly right i feel like there is the inherently interesting story of the black dahlia right there but you can surround it with more 
more to it and build these characters and how it affects their life. And yeah, the love triangle is dope. And I think Hillary Swank is good, but I just think that whole story with her and her family is kind of dumb and maybe not (laughs) dumb might be the wrong word if I read the book or if it was more flushed out, but for what you called out already and then for how rushed like the ending is and basically that scene with the POV shot just exists for us to be like, oh, I guess we're supposed to memorize these faces. (laughs) They might come back up again. I don't Um, think it helps that the, I don't know, your mileage may vary. Here, hit me with the with your judgment here on uh, the mom's performance as a as a drunkard. Too much. Yeah, I didn't. I was. God, it, I, I know that, that there's uh, an element of artificiality to that entire family, right? Like we we brought up in the church corner the way Hillary Swank talks is not like the way anybody else is talking, and and the way her dad talks. Uh, but then the mom is just kicked up to like a hundred, and. I had a really hard time buying her in that first scene at the dinner. And then even worse, when I realized, oh, my God, she's the one that's going to deliver the exposition about the crime. (laughs) It was my heart sank. It was so, so bad. I I would appreciate if you just stopped shooting things, officer. The, The rich don't own art just for themselves. We, We save, keep it for future generations. I think that the the problem is that it's not meant to, or at least the way it's written, you know, those those two things don't overlap. The story of uh, Lee and Bucky and Kay and that relationship, ideally, it should just be enveloped by the Black Dahlia. Or the Black Dahlia would be something that would trigger a change in them. And then, uh, yeah. but it doesn't really, I mean, it kind of does, but not so much because... Aaron Eckert being, I think that's a, a big problem that Aaron Eckert is gone from the movie, that he doesn't make it to the end. Because if the if, if your end game is that, well, at the end of everything that happens, Josh Hartnett, Bucky, is going to find whatever it is that he needs to find in himself to consider that he is worthy of K or that he can be with K, right? <laughs> that then you he get is there. the heavyweight champion. Yes, yes. <laughs> He's not going to throw the fight this time. He's going to go for it. Uh, you know, if we're going to take, you know, the journey is that he is a certain person at the beginning of the movie, and then at the end, he's the kind of person that will kill Hillary Swank in cold blood for revenge to avenge his buddy, and then go and have zero qualms about hooking up with his buddy's girlfriend. Then, all right, but I don't think that the movie kind of takes us on that journey. Instead, if I think that the first act is almost a perfect setup of that triangle that those relationships and then once we get to the black dahlia itself that it starts that, that story instead of enhancing the love triangle it, it instead it starts getting in the way of that story of you know and, and they're fighting for attention instead of working together it's honestly when i read the graphic novel i felt the same way even even though the like i said the the fate of the Aaron ecker character of lee is different in that book it's kind of like the same thing. You're very interested in those relationships and then halfway through, uh, Lee disappears. And then eventually you find out and in, in the process of him finding out, of, of uh, Bucky finding out what happened to Lee, he leaves the investigation of Black Dahlia. So it's, again, it, it just splits. So it could be that the problem is the book. <laughs> but maybe also, you know, some things just work better in a book. In a book, maybe you can take those digressions and... Uh, 
integrate them better. And and when you're adapting into a movie, whether it's two hours or three hours, it's still it's just not meant to work that well. And and actually, it wouldn't surprise me if that entire the end of the Aaron Ecker character is a reshoot. It would make so much sense because it's just so dumb <laughs> that that the scene where he dies is just so badly shot and so rushed that it would make sense that there's a three hour cut where they actually stick to what I saw in the graphic novel, which I'm assuming it's in the book, where he just disappears and then Hardin has to go look for him in Mexico and all that stuff, you know. But instead, they're like, no, we're cutting this out, so instead give him a a faster death. Just take care of it right now, and and then that's why it's shot and put together so haphazardly. So I think just to go back and kind of wrap up how we think this could have worked before we kind of, you know, run down the the players involved here. I love the idea of the triangle with there still being this investigation going on and showing how it affects them individually. During the investigation, we get like this Oppenheimer style that guy, that girl, like the, you mm-hmm. know, the Rose McGowan and um, Kevin Dunn. someone else in this. Kevin Dunn. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, those are two titans of the industry right there, you know, and uh, John Cavanaugh is Emma. You know, I, I like the idea of these and even Richard Brake just kind of uh, people you recognize in these small roles. That's the, the problem with it. And then again, maybe one day we'll get the release the De Palma cut and see what more could have been there. But through this conversation, I I'm more positive on this movie than the general consensus is, but it's making me realize like there was so much potential here that just kind of feels squandered. Um, so with that in mind, moving along to our players involved, we've talked about Hillary Swank's character. We've talked about Madeline and kind of, yeah, <laughs> uh, it is what it is but she she goes for it in this man and she's not an actress that we joke about with people a lot of the time like De Niro we talk about all the time uh, Scorsese is the only person that he you know actually shows up for these days and uh, Hillary Swank even in shit like New Year's Day New Year's Eve whatever that was called and then like um, fuck what was that wasn't she in like some romantic comedy or romantic movie with Gerard Butler or some shit uh, oh is it uh, P.S. I Love You yes yes <laughs> I'm just trying to think of like dog shit movies she's been in but she she still like gives I mean Million Dollar Baby and she won an Oscar for it but um, she's not someone that's known to kind of phone it in so we shouldn't be surprised that she really goes for it here but I, I I really enjoyed when she was on screen not delivering exposition. What did you think about <laughs> Hillary Swank in this movie? I I said in Gazrash Corner that it it was a little jolting when she showed up and she sounded like <laughs> like she was in a in an actual movie from the forties. And I have the vapors. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean I think that I like the performances from almost everybody else better, but okay. that also helps me not worry so much about it. Because at first, when, when you know she first showed up and she started talking, I was like, "Oh no, this is where it starts getting bad." Because uh, 
I was waiting. Yeah, my 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 recollection from when I watched it was that at some point, you know, when I watched it when it came out, my recollection was that at some point it went off the rails. And I enjoyed this movie a lot for a long time. And I kept waiting. I was like, okay, when is it that it jumps a shark? Uh, the answer is, by the way, when when Ecker dies. I think that that's when it just starts unraveling badly. Before then, even when it was Very having fair. the steps, I was like, okay, but they, they can still, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Um but anyway, she shows up and and I thought that maybe that was it, that that wasn't going to be able to really buy into this. But no, she she kind of won me over because she was surrounded by other actors that I that I liked, especially Harnett. I think, uh, I mean, we'll get to him in a minute, but I think he's really, really good. So that's fine. You know, it, it works. It's not, I wish that she hadn't played it that way. I think that, I guess she needs to be different from the Scarlett Johansson character. I mean, she needs to play a different note. Otherwise, it's going to be like, well, what's the difference? Why is he so conflicted between one and the other, right? <laughs> so ScarJo is supposed to be the, the good girl and Hilary Swank is supposed to be the, the bad girl. And I get, you know, I can appreciate the commitment. I can appreciate that you know, she had a take on it and, and she went for it, like you said. So um, I'm not going to be handing her the, the Embry, but I can I can respect the choices, I guess. Julio, the 2006 of Scarlett Johansson was Scoop, The Black Dahlia, and The Prestige. Woody Allen, Brian De Palma, Christopher Nolan, all in the same calendar year. (laughs) Now, I think she's very good in this, and like she projects this sense of uh, urgency and everything that she does and like uh, even when she's trying to cover up and you know not sell the 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 stakes of what's at hand but i think she's probably the most consistent performance in this who knows what this other elusive hour consists of but for the two hours that we did get i think she's the most consistent you would hope that there was more scarjo in that hour because they they set her up as a very important part of the movie in the first act. Yes. And then once they start investigating the Black Dahlia, she shows up to complain about Aaron Eckert and then she goes away. She has she has that awesome moment. <laughs> and I called it out in Contrast Corner where she she basically propositions uh, Josh Hartnett and, uh, in a very adult, serious way. What's going to happen to us, Dwight? Three of us. No, us. Just the two of us. I love that scene. And then she has a, is it a follow-up scene? Or is it the end of that where she just slams the door on him? You know, she goes up to the bathroom and he's looking at her. And then she she just closes the door like, nope, you missed your chance. That's it. Yep. <laughs> she, she looks back at him and then he, he tries to, let, he flashes her a smile, I think. And then she's like, tough shit, brother. <laughs> slams the door on him. Yeah. Uh, she also gets some some exposition dumps, Alex, uh, but I think that she manages them much better, probably because she is allowed to emote through them uh, in a more convincing way, right? She's she's panicking. She's, she's dealing with the fact that Josh Hart had just found out that she was lying or that she was keeping the, the money from him or the, the, the rest of the story about the money from him. And so she has to explain what happened, how that money ended up in... in in their house and what Lee was planning to do and all that stuff. And she gets through it in a way that doesn't feel as leaden as the exposition we get towards the end of the movie. Uh, and I think it's because she's freaking out and we care that she's freaking out and we are invested in that relationship. Uh, when we get to the end, it just feels like, you know, check marks. We're just checking boxes to, to finish the story. A big part of that too is like, 
in those exposition dumps, Josh Hartnett's reacting more because and he also is like kind of finishing her thoughts because he's figuring it out along mm-hmm. with the audience. Yeah. yeah Whereas, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the the family of rich white assholes at the end is dropping everything. <laughs> he's like he's uh, you know, he doesn't know what to do. He's crestfallen. He's he's Tommy. So at the, at the end of the room, that type of thing. <laughs> so anyway, Aaron Eckhart. For as much as we've talked about him, his scenes vary in uh, what he's able to do. I do think Aaron Eckhart is a better bad guy's extreme, but he's someone who definitely I buy as kind of an asshole and being kind of a, a dickhead or, you know, um, Invested more in his interests in the greater good, that type of thing. That, that's the Harvey Dent character. Kind of like how Bruce Wayne in that movie takes shots at him, takes a piss out of him. And <laughs> because, you know, he does seem kind of insincere. Uh, and when he's trying to be just the the good guy, I mean, it shouldn't be a shocker that Aaron Eckhart didn't become, you know, a leading man in romantic comedies or. Um, you know the the hero character. He didn't become Chris Evans, I guess, because something like this, you buy him way more in in this type of role, where it's like, yeah, he does seem like he would lie or kind of be a, a bit of a shithead or a lot of a shithead with some of the stuff he does in this movie. Um, and that's, I don't know him in real life, but I'm just telling you, you look at him, and you're like, oh, look at his haircut. That guy <laughs> seems a bit disingenuous. So, what I, I thought. <laughs> I thought he was pretty good in this and um now I I'm just wanting that 3 hour cut, you know? I'm oh, wanting I wanted these characters to breathe more. Yeah, something else that's missing that's probably in that 3 hour cut is some sort of transition from him being uh what seems to be like a, an excitable but somewhat sane guy into whatever happens to him once the Black Dahlia investigation starts because he loses his shit from one scene to the other and later they explain they give him the backstory of like oh well you know his sister was 15 and she was murdered or killed and he never he never found the the guilty party or whatever it's not enough i i actually wrote lol what happened to aaron eckhart because he was he was put together right he was the the guy that was actually a lot more confident and more self-assured he was calling the shots for josh hartnett and then it's like as soon as they find the the Black Dahlia victim, you know, this obsession develops and it doesn't it, it seems to come out of nowhere. It, there has to be, uh, I would say, two or three scenes worth of him transitioning into that. You know, they keep mentioning that he's on drugs, that he's taking something, but we never see it. So it doesn't really hit that hard. But I like I like Eric Carr's performance here. I remember feeling that intensity that he brings to the character even from the trailer do you remember seeing the trailer for this movie uh maybe i i don't remember off the top of my head it doesn't have any it, it wasn't the watchman trailer it, it no, wasn't it was that not. memorable but it had uh you could see them fighting and i i think that there was like a slow-mo push in on um the new year's party where he is uh where he's drinking Right, like he's looking at scarjo and and josh harnett dancing and he goes from smiling at them to you can tell that something clicks and he goes like, wait a second. <laughs> Is there something yeah. going on there? And uh, that shot was in the trailer. And I just remember at the time, I think it was for me, it was like, oh, it's the guy from uh, Thank You for Smoking. And he's he looks he looks scary in this one. 
So, Thank you for smoking. Yes, he is perfect in the role in that movie. Yep. That is a perfect Aaron Eckhart casting. This smarmy, old yep. American smarm. Uh, so yeah, I, I think he's good. I think that the movie drops the ball with the character, but that's not him. He, I think, is pretty memorable considering that that his his arc seems butchered either by the studio or by the screenplay, whatever the case. Man, he must have been so relieved to have the Dark Knight. Was it like right after this? This is 06. Dark Knight was summer of 08. So yeah, it wasn't wasn't long after. Yeah. But and he doesn't have to do anything again for the rest of his life <laughs> if he doesn't want to. <laughs> it's it's good. You know, it's like it, that was because uh, it's got to be heartbreaking to be in this movie and be so good. But then you it comes out and you go, you go to the premiere or whatever. And you're like, man, what happened? This doesn't make any sense. That has to be, that's something we don't talk about enough, uh, but we've, we've done enough of movies like this that have like, you know, the original cut where it was supposed to be a lot different. And then imagine being an actor in that, that doesn't see the dailies, you know, Mm -hmm. and you just know all the stuff you filmed and then you go and watch it and it's like this and fuck man, that would be a deflating experience. Again, not that I think this is like terrible, but you know, we don't know all the other shit that was in that and that these guys did. And guys, you know, we had Aaron Eckhart, and I guess we move on to the show closer, the main event, Josh Hartnett, who's back in the fold now, baby. But um, my first thought is like, man, he grew up because we we talked yeah. about Halloween H two O, and he is one of my least favorite aspects of that movie. He aged more between H2O and this than he did between this and Oppenheimer. <laughs> it's true. But in a good way. I, I think yeah, that yeah, yeah. I think that he I can buy him as an adult police officer, a, a detective. Some actors can't shake that. If if you first saw them as high schoolers, then it's just like, oh, it's just this high school kid playing pretend. But no, I I, I buy him. I was I don't know if that was the case when I saw the movie the first time. Like I, I think that I was just like, oh, it's the guy from Pearl Harbor. And at the time, it felt like Hollywood's trying to just push him so hard. And so I think that I didn't give his performance its due when I first watched this movie. But watching it today, I was pretty impressed. I'm like, he carries the movie. Even when it's not making sense, I think that he he has the presence and he he sells it. You, were, you made a joke. I think it was before we started recording about uh, the eyebrow acting. Uh, but it works. I'll take it. Yeah, I I mean, for every moment that it's kind of like, oh man, this might be, he might be out of his depth here. There's other moments like as ridiculous as it is when ScarJo drops that huge exposition on him, the way he reacts when he figures it all out is genuinely really good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just some of his general reactions to the situations at hand are very good as well. And yeah, he's got some good blocks going. Looks like he actually took some boxing training. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't say for certainty that this derailed, you know, what he had going on. So Black Dahlia, then there was Lucky Number Slevin, Resurrecting the Champ. I remember that movie. So, yeah, it looked like there was a couple bad decisions in a row. And then 30 Days of Night, for which he was nominated uh, for a Teen Choice Award. So joke's on us, Julio. (laughs) And for the first time in my life. I had people that knew that for the briefest of times, in the darkest of places, I had been so, so good at some things. 
Julio, it would be uh, disrespectful of us to not at least acknowledge the fact that this movie is based around a real story of a young woman being murdered uh, from FBI.gov on their famous cases page. The 1947 murder of a 22-year-old Hollywood hopeful in Los Angeles has never been solved. On the morning of January 15th, 1947, a mother taking her child for a walk in a Los Angeles neighborhood stumbled upon a gruesome sight. The body of a young naked woman sliced clean in half at the waist. The body was just a few feet from the sidewalk and posed in such a way that the mother reportedly thought it was a mannequin at first glance. Despite the extensive mutilation and cuts on the body, there wasn't a drop of blood at the scene, indicating the young woman had been killed elsewhere. The ensuing investigation was led by the L.A. Police Department. The FBI was asked to help and quickly identify the body just 56 minutes, in fact, after getting blurred fingerprints via Sound Photo, a primitive fax machine used by news services from Los Angeles. The young woman turned out to be a 22-year-old Hollywood hopeful named Elizabeth Short, later dubbed the Black Dahlia by the press for her rumored penchant for sheer black clothes and for the Blue Dahlia movie out at the time. Short's prints actually appeared twice in the FBI's massive collection. See, I do love this is the FBI's website, so they make sure to call out the things they did get right in this case. <laughs> and they they do have a massive collection. Uh, parenthetically, more than 100 million prints were on file at the time. First, she had applied for a job as a clerk at a commissionary of the Army's Camp Cook in California in 1943, January of 43. Second, she had been arrested by the Santa Barbara police for underage drinking seven months later. The Bureau also had her mugshot in its files and provided it to the press. In support of L.A. police, the FBI ran records checks on potential suspects and conducted interviews across the nation. Based on early suspicions that the murderer may have had skills in dissection because the body was so cleanly cut, agents were also asked to check out a group of students at the University of Southern California Medical School. And in a tantalizing potential break in the case, the Bureau searched for a match to fingerprints found on anonymous letters that may have been sent to authorities by the killer, but the prints weren't in the FBI's files. Who killed the Black Dahlia and why? It remains a mystery. The murderer has never been found, and given how much time has passed, probably never will be. The legend grows. Okay, so obviously that was written before the De Palma movie came out, because now we know. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought that up, because I almost forgot something that I, I somewhat teased at the end of Concerns Corner, and that is that I, I do want to praise the hell out of Mia Kirshner's performance as Elizabeth Short, because I think that those audition tapes that they keep watching are pretty uh, heartbreaking, captivating. I mean, I said heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and, but, you know, she doesn't get that much screen time, but you totally get her as a character and, you know, as a representation of uh, a Hollywood hopeful. Going back to the idea that the depiction of Hollywood, that this machine that just takes all the people that arrive wanting to make a mark and then just destroys them. It's really sad. I mean, it's, I don't want to keep shitting on the neon demon, but it's like that, those audition scenes, you <laughs> keep know, going, brother. they made me feel a lot more than anything that happened in, in Nicholas Winding reference movie, you know? Yeah. It, 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 I mean, I know it's just a matter of preference, but for me that just seeing this, this woman who, from what we can gather in those tapes is not particularly talented or at least isn't now, 
right? Like, who knows what could have happened to her if she had gotten mentored and, you know, if she, she had raw talent that needed to be developed or if she was just hopeless, who knows? But what you see on the tape is somebody who can't really deliver lines, but she's just so earnest and just wants to please. She'll do whatever it takes to to catch a break. And and you know that she's already dead by the time you're seeing these things and, you, and she seems so innocent. And then on top of that, just the nastiness of seeing the, the sex tape later. It's just, she's great. And I don't know. I mean, I didn't recognize her right away, but at some point I was like, who is this woman? And so I looked her up and I see a strange new world in her credits. I was like, oh, she's Spock's mom. And it was, you know, she has one episode so far that she's shown up on the, on the show and she's really good. She's really funny in it. And uh, I guess I'm glad that she's still you know, it's not that, oh, she took the role of Elizabeth Short in this movie and then she kind of faded away. You know, she, she has a lot of credits and she's on Strange New Worlds right now. She's Spock's mom, so she's going to show up again. <laughs> Good. Uh, but yeah, I, I, that's my final shout out and my final positive. I, I think that she's... She's really good. She nailed it. And and it's one of the reasons that when the movie works, in part, it works because you care about what happened to Elizabeth Short and, and that sometimes, you know, in so many of these crime movies... The victims turn out to be pretty, uh, uh, just faceless. You know, they're just there for the sake yeah. of the plot, but not you don't you're not really invested in them. Miss Short, you know this is a very sad scene. Do you think you're capable of playing sadness? Sure, I can do that. The tale of the Black Dahlia is very sad in the sense of I think it kind of just boiled down to she was like a nobody. So the case was fumbled a bit more uh, than it would have been if it was a rich person or an elite Mm -hmm. in uh, Los Angeles at the time, which is, you know, always sad. I'm not sure this movie that we got paid mind to that. And I'm not sure the three hour cut that we keep the mythical three hour cut we keep referencing to would have done that. But there's something here. And this movie does have, you know, it's not quite like a Howard the Duck level worst movie of all time. But there is to those like kind of in the nose, there seems to be this. Oh, when this movie comes up, Mm -hmm. which I think is completely unwarranted. It's not great. And uh this discussion has helped me more with my <laughs> feelings that I went through throughout the movie of like, oh, this is really good. Oh, this really sucks. Oh, it's all right. So I kind of have a, a better <laughs> idea of where I stand with it at this point in time. Um, it's it's historic in the De Palma sense. This was the, the death nail. Warranted or not, you got to wonder if they released that three-hour cut yeah, maybe they may not have made their money back, but like critically, you know, it could have, who knows what it could have been. And then, of course, if something gains critical success, there's a higher likelihood of more people going out to watch it. So who fucking knows? That's if your movie's good enough in three hours, people go see it. There's this thing called Titanic, and I think it did all right for itself. <laughs> uh, Endgame's over three hours, right? And this isn't me defending the quality of that movie, but I'm just saying, you know. I mean, you gotta you gotta build up to it though, Alex. So yeah, you, you got to build up for ten years so you can make another thirty years afterwards. <laughs> uh, just give me the De Palma uh, Punisher movie. Oh my God! Now. <laughs> Now you're talking my language. Uh, the, 
Calvin Candy now. Is that his name? You you had you have my attention. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't think this movie is as bad, anywhere near as bad as its legacy would lead you to believe. Um, that being said, it ain't great. So I'm probably going to err on the side of like a C, C plus, which would probably translate to like a three star review at most. I can't see myself going with three and a half, but it's a movie I would encourage people to watch with like we talk about this all the time saying like it ain't great, but like there's a lot of redeeming qualities about it. So, Julio, where did you find yourself on this viewing of the Black Dahlia uh, as far as a, a rating goes? Well, at least as far as the the star rating goes, I'm going to be a little harsher than you, just two and a half, because it, it's funny, it's weird, really, because there's some elements of it that I like so much, and uh, in a way, us talking about the performances versus us talking about the the story, the screenplay, is like night and day, and but at the end, the best performances in the world can't save a, a story that falls apart. So uh, yeah, I'm pretty middling on it. I would recommend it still. I would say like, watch it. It looks great. De Palma is a great visual storyteller, except for when he has to kill Aaron Eckhart, apparently. <laughs> but for the most part, you call out the music in Contreras Corner. The music is great. The production design, those fucking hats. It's amazing. So yeah. watch it. I, I think that most people, if they watch the first 30 minutes, they would be hooked. And then they would probably stick with it all the way to the end. It, it did. It's only two hours. So. It's not that bad. I, I I think watch it if you haven't, just so that you can you can at least make the call and go, yeah, this is as bad as they said. Or if you fall in our camp, or you're like, you know, it's not as bad as they say, and it's a shame that it's not better. Yeah, three or two and a half. I think uh, I, I haven't decided yet where my much anticipated letterbox review will land. But um, so concludes the mainstream career of Brian De Palma, and so concludes. <laughs> our episode on the black dahlia julio what is coming up next coming up next alex this is this is gonna be different this is a patron demand from Stu from swo it is an animated movie it is not made by disney going into new territories for both of us it's called your name and i remember it being a huge deal when it came out a few years ago it's fresh so <laughs> we're going to be pretty heartless and, and treat it like critics treated the Black Dahlia. Uh, a much different uh, rating on the tomato meter at 98%. <laughs> God, everybody loves it. Can't wait to see uh, the negative quotes. It's not this. Uh, <laughs> and so concludes our Black Dahlia episode. And in case we forget uh, to circle back to this when the Oscars come, uh, if Hartnett's on screen... Uh, if he hits the stage when it wins Best Picture, just Josh, do like um, pound your chest and then kiss your fingers and point at the camera. We'll we'll know that's for us. <laughs> just just lean over, take the microphone for like a second and go fire and ice, fire and ice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, that would be just spectacular. And then it cuts to uh, Aaron, Eckhart. Aaron Eckhart crying <laughs> in the crowd. <laughs> All right. There's no way that the Oscars will live up to that. So we've set ourselves <sighs> up for disappointment. <laughs> Might as well get out of here at this point. Let's go. Welcome to our end credits. Or as we usually call them, our perennial plugs. 
We start off by giving thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand and take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rutgeeser is the man behind our logo and all the art you see related to our show. Reach out to him and let him know how much you like that little tomato. His email address is mildemonios at hotmail.com and his website is mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can also check out his podcast, Nación Combi, about Peruvian current affairs and Marginal, about economy. Hans, thank you for all your support. For those interested in the regularly absurd world of professional wrestling, Joe and the boys over at LateNightGrin.com have you covered. Tell them the contrarians sent you. And we'd like to close with special thanks to our social media team of Zoe Perez and Coriari. Each of the social media accounts we mentioned in the introduction look as good as they do because of their work. So that'll do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Just promise me you're well.